The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of their organization. Welcome to the Enterprise Knowledge Cast, ranked by Feedspot as the number one KM podcast. This is a look into the world of knowledge management, information management, data management, and everything in between. Knowledge Cast is brought to you by Enterprise Knowledge. I'm Zach Wall, founder and CEO of VK. Today we're speaking with Danita Folkvang, manager of knowledge management at Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. Danita, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, this is great. Now, for those of our listeners who might not know, can you tell them a little bit about RPA and explain what the organization does, what the mission of the organization is, and specifically what your role is there? So Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors was, I think it was created in 2001, came out of the Rockefeller family office because what was happening is that the family had recognized that their grant making was being looked at by other people and their friends and colleagues and other people in the sector were coming to them to say, how are you managing to do this? How are you able to do this sort of grant making? And it happened enough times that the family was like, well, let's see if we spin this out as an independent organization, if there's enough there there for it to happen. We we like to joke that we have the name without the endowment because we are <laughs> ourselves a 501c3. And we have three major buckets of work that we do in the sector. The first one is the advisory part, which is what we were doing for the family when we were still in the office, which is helping donors figure out where to put their philanthropic dollars. Because unlike back in the day, donors from today are still working. They're still in their jobs. They don't have the time to spend all day, every day looking at organizations, researching the field, etc. So we help them with that portion. The second bucket is our fiscal sponsorship arm. Projects come to us either as they're ramping up or if they know that they're going to be a finite sort of project. They come to us and use our 501c3 rather than having to apply for a 501c3 themselves, which means that we do like the back office stuff, but we also help with the regranting if they need to. Um, and the last portion is thought leadership. RPA has a fabulous reputation in the sector, and we want to provide sector guidance as well as learn from the sector. So we have a lot of guides that will help people figure out their philanthropic journey, and we try to make as much of our knowledge open to the sector as possible because nobody wants to reinvent the wheel, and we do it every single day as a, as a society. Let, so many wheels. Let's review Sorry. all the words that you just used. So advice, sure. reuse, thought leadership, guidance, learning, knowledge, avoiding reinventing the wheel. These are all knowledge management challenges and solutions, right? You Absolutely. Your role is to make all of this happen. Your role is to ensure that that thought leadership, that knowledge, there's a lot there. Talk a little bit about what you do for the organization and how... RPA sort of regards KM or how it's defined within the organization? I have to shout out to my colleagues because KM can't be done by one person alone. Yeah. And so what is beautiful to me is some of the KM tenets that I've heard myself, that I've learned, are now starting to be echoed back to me by some yeah. of my colleagues, which is amazing because you know my biggest thing is everybody holds a certain amount of knowledge. I don't create content under the guise of knowledge management. 
And I'll always tell people that I will not have all of the answers, but I can usually point you in the direction of the person or the work product that's going to have the next step in the treasure hunt of knowledge. Danita, I think when last we talked, I described you as the human search engine of RPA, the person that knew where all the content was and that everybody would come to in order to figure out, hey, have we ever done this? Or is there a starting place for this? Does that ring a bell? The actual term does not, but I appreciate it so much. (laughs) (laughs) And and does that sound about right? I mean, that's a big part. You basically, you're a wayfinder. You right now are helping people find the things that are going to help them do their job. I would like to put myself in that role and I achieve it sometimes, not as often as I'd like, Mm. truthfully, you know, because knowledge management is something that still sometimes has to be a little stealthy because in my opinion, knowledge management is everything. Yeah. But that's a little frightening to people sometimes because they're like, but my job is everything. And I'm like, yes, because you are part of knowledge management. But RPA has been really great about recognizing the need for this knowledge management and recognizing the need for putting people first in that quest to find the stuff that they need. There is no one definition of of knowledge management, but my friends Rosanna and Kelly and I came up with one that has worked for me for like three, four years. And if I may, I'd love to yes, read please. That to you. And, mm-hmm. and just to be clear, is this your definition or is this RPA's definition, or are they one and the same? This is the definition that I'm starting to hear echoed back to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would say it still belongs to Kelly, Rosanna, and me but we're trying to promulgate it throughout RPA. It's creating pathways that integrate communities in an equitable manner and facilitate knowledge in order for the right information to get to the right person at the right time in the right format. Nice. I especially like a couple elements of this. First of all, I think introducing equity into this is very cool. And I'd like to talk to you about that. But I also, the right place, right time, right person, right stuff sort of theme, I think is so critical. I mean, it talks about the outcomes of what good KM does. In a nutshell, it just makes it easy for people to find the stuff that they need for the right information to flow to them. And so any way that that can be said in a manner that will resonate with folks, I think is great. But let's go back to the equity piece. This is, we're seeing this more and more, and it's coming up in conversations that good KM is actually going to help foster equity and inclusion within an organization. Can you speak a little bit about your perspective on how that equity piece comes into KM? Yes, because it is, I think it's my raison d'etre in that Peter Drucker, who did the theory of the business, he has a quote that reads, "Um, today knowledge has power. It controls access to opportunity and advancement. And that to me says it all. Knowledge management, getting back to the definition that I just read of our version of knowledge management, first of all, can you imagine doing your job and having the right information at the right time in the right format? How would that change your life as a knowledge worker in your organization, right? But then this is one of the reasons that I love this definition because it begs the question of who gets to decide what's right? Who gets to decide who the right person is, what the right time is, what the right format is? Is that something that is come to collectively, collaboratively? Is it based on liberating structures? Or is that fit into a hierarchical structure that has been passed down to us in what is considered 
the business world, mm -hmm. when in fact, if knowledge is shared and people have equal access to the knowledge that they need, how does that shift the paradigm of what knowledge management can do? I talk about the organizational network analysis a lot when I'm talking about how knowledge management and racial equity fit together. To me, they're one and the same, just from different lenses. So with the organizational network analysis, as you all know, you look at the structure of the organization through a different lens. It's the same information. This is, again, what I love about knowledge management. We're not reinventing stuff. For the most part, it's knowledge that exists in your organization. But the questions that are being asked allow the knowledge to emerge in a different way. It's almost a rate on a bell curve where the holders of the vast amount of knowledge are those really in the middle of the organization, both from a hierarchical perspective, sort of like the middle management, if you will, as well as from a tenure perspective. The people that have been at the organization, perhaps not actually the longest, but to an extent, sort of the sweet spot of experience within the organization. Are, are you seeing the same thing? Absolutely. You know, one of my colleagues asked, how do we change the paradigm in how we work right now? And I said, I think it's strengthening the middle. And when we're talking about things like the organizational network analysis, where you identify the connectors in the organization, you know, like I've always said, if you really want to, to get task forces together or committees together that are going to move and shift your organization in the way you want it to, go to those connector people. A lot of times those connector people come from overlooked and untapped communities. And what I mean by that is communities that are often put to the side, the marginalized communities, people of color, LGBTQIA, sometimes age, differently abled people. Because one of the things that we as marginalized communities have to do is, let me go off on another tangent, the idea of inclusion, it disturbs me sometimes because it means that there's already an existing community into which others need to be included rather mm -hmm. than let's build something together that is equitable, right? If you're trying to build inclusion into your organization, try thinking of, of it as building belonging. What is it going to take that people are going to feel like they can bring themselves, bring their ideas, bring their dissent into the room with them? We as communities often find ourselves in primarily white spaces and primarily male spaces. And we've had to grow that other sense of how do I fit myself in? How do I learn to talk to different people with different needs, with different personalities? We have found a way to get ourselves into the community, which allows us to see when other people are struggling to get themselves into the community. And that's where knowledge management comes in. That's where racial equity comes in. That's where equity in general comes in. When we recognize the need of other people to have access to the things that are going to make them engaged with their work, who are going to feel like they have all of the tools they need to do their work in a way that allows them to thrive and allows their teams to thrive and allows their organizations to thrive. This is a really neat point, and I, I want to paraphrase it to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're basically saying is that folks that are in traditionally disengaged or unengaged communities have kind of been forced to learn a skill of breaking down barriers or connecting people in such a way that they actually make really effective 
connectors, as you say, KMers, as I would say, Mm -hmm. but basically the the skills of breaking in that many have been forced to learn just due to circumstance and the way that the organizations have traditionally operated has created a skill that we need to value more. Am I getting that right? Yes. When you have people who hold your organization together, often with spit and duct tape, those are the people that when they leave, It's felt immediately, but because they're so interwoven in the organization, people don't recognize how much they held together Mm. until that fabric starts to unravel. And two, three months down the line, you're like, why are things not gelling like they used to? They can't be attributed to the people who left because those are not skills that are traditionally valued in the current structures that we uphold. How does KM play a role in this? Because it strikes me that to come full circle, you're talking about connecting, you're talking about giving voice, and a word that I like to use is encouraging innovation or new ideas within the organization. KM can play a pretty major role here if harnessed, if if formalized, both from a perspective of processes, of getting everybody sharing knowledge, of breaking down those silos, so design from a perspective of getting the right structures, both organizationally and informationally in place to break down silos that traditionally exist or barriers that traditionally exist. And then collaboration, getting people talking and communicating and collaborating. I mean, there's a lot here where KM can actually encourage or fuel a more equitable and inclusive workplace. Yes? Absolutely. (laughs) So talk to me about what RPA is doing in that space. Why don't you give us a sense of, you know, what's on RPA's roadmap or KM goals at this point? One of the sort of seemingly small, but ultimately gateway things that we're doing are after action reviews. You know, we've been trying to socialize them over the last few years, and it's not a quick process of getting that into the organizational zeitgeist, you know, because people are like, we've already done the work. Why do we now have to do more work about the work? And when I do AARs with my colleagues, I'm very clear about pulling the curtain away so that they can understand what this tool actually does. For example, we get everybody who was involved in the engagement, we get them in the same room or in the same Zoom. I tell them explicitly, hierarchy has now been thrown out the window. We are not talking about this person gets to talk more, this person's viewpoint is more valid. We want to get a 360 view of how this engagement went. And that means that everybody has a voice. People are like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And it's very difficult for people to be agnostic and objective about some of these things. And this is one of the things that I have to remind them. We're not assigning blame and we're not giving accolades. We are looking at this from as objective a view as possible. When that keeps being reiterated, the people who don't speak up quite as much, who don't usually have a platform they come out of the woodwork and they're like, one of the things that I've noticed is X. And everybody's like, oh yeah, that's really true. Okay, let's get some of these lessons learned and out into the organization. And the idea of talking through the information that's gathered to which population in the organization is that going to be useful? It's another way of including and reaching out to other parts of the organization to say, hey, we're talking about this engagement and this came up. We thought you'd be interested. All of a sudden, a connection is made. That's an important point, both about the concept of after actions and lessons learned. You're putting all of this effort into capturing knowledge. That knowledge is only valuable. That effort only pays off if that knowledge then gets to the right people 
and is used. So there are challenges around how it's delivered or how it's found. There are also challenges around the form that it's put in and is that the right form to ensure that it is easily consumed and understood by others. So Danina, tell us the story. Talk us through that process. You've got this great new piece of knowledge. How does it get to the right people? How does that happen today? Sounds like maybe it's somewhat of a human process and, and how do you want it to happen in the future? Well, it brings in all parts of knowledge management, you know, the technology, the process, and the people. We're still primarily working on the people part of it because if you plan for the people, the technology and the process kind of fall into place. One of the things that has been so many of our interactions are relatively passive. We're told what to do. Here's the agenda for the meeting. You can sort of just coast on what's going on in whatever meeting you're in. With after action reviews and the results of the after action reviews, you have to bring people in and you have to get them to think in a way that some brains don't naturally go to. So then it's a question of, okay, here's all this knowledge. What do we do with it? As you said. And then it's that sort of incremental, well, this piece of information would probably be useful to this crowd over here. How do we get it to them? Mm -hmm. Do we invite them into another meeting? Do we do case studies? Do we send it in an email, also known as the abyss? Right. You know, how do we do this? And then it brings in document tagging. It brings in the search and the findability that, that we talked about because I know that it exists. And this is the other beautiful thing about things like AARs or knowledge retention groups is that you've now passed that knowledge on, not only in the form of paper or a recording or a meme or a word cloud, it also now lives in the brain of the people that were in the room. So even if you don't get the knowledge to the other team in a timely fashion, there's every possibility that somebody in this AAR is going to talk to somebody else in a different department and go, you know, we just learned about this thing. I wonder if this resonates for you. I love that point of the unintended positive consequence, right? The idea that simply by taking the action, even if you intend for this newly captured knowledge or new innovation to be distributed or shared or found in one particular way, there's likely to be triggers that happen, positive triggers, good things that happen where somebody said, you know, we were just talking about this or somebody just asked me about this. It spawns more activity. And I think that that's one of the great consequences of good KM is that it gets people thinking in a different way and changing their behavior, not just to the way you intended, but ideally to other positive mechanisms. Now, I need to go back to one very specific thing you said. You you mentioned memes. Are you using memes at RPA and how? I need to know about this. (laughs) Sometimes the memes pop up in PowerPoints. Somebody shared a meme with me. This was probably back in March and it has stayed with me. It is nothing should go back to normal. Normal wasn't working. If we go back to the way things were, we will have lost the lesson. Maybe rise up and do better. I like it. Right? Yeah. It's the same for KM. If we go back to the way we were doing things, we're just going to be in the same pattern. I got it. I was curious if there was the little picture, the nailed it kid there. I I was picturing that kind of meme. So I I needed to clarify on that. No, we've used those as well. More (laughs) internally than externally. You don't want to make your clients go, what are these people doing? I talk about what you and Claire were helping us to understand this unstructured knowledge Mm -hmm. and how much it is now coming into our lives personally and now moving into professional because the purpose of a meme is that it gets across an entire world of stuff 
with one picture and a couple of words. Yeah, no, that's why I wanted to ask about it. I mean, there really is some power to it. And I also think that there's, you know, some people, I think this is shifting, but there used to be this thing that when you're at work, you're going to be formal and you're not going to joke around and you're going to be very, you're going to follow the template and follow the process and you're going to do this and that. And I think that actually going back to our earlier conversation about equity and inclusion, bringing some humanity into the workplace and bringing some fun into the workplace, letting people be a little bit more like their non-work self uh, is really healthy for performance and and job satisfaction and employee comfort within the workplace, a lot of good KME things. So I was curious whether you had found a way to bring like a fun meme type of experience into your KM processes. And it seems like you're getting there. That's neat. I'll tell you one of the things that I have done recently is, do you, have you ever heard of an I am poem? No. Okay, so somebody created sort of a template, and it starts with I am, and then you fill in little things like, what's your home state? What's your, And then you read it. Out of this template comes a poem. I have started using my I am poem when I'm introducing myself to people in webinars, mm. in groups. I'm going to mess it up, but Plutarch had this quote along the lines of, a mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. And so when you have normal intros for people. You're like, you play this role. This is how long you've been in the workplace. You might say something about your family. You probably not. I will admit to sometimes glazing over in those things. So I've started experimenting with this poem, which I'm going to read to you now, as a means to get to the conversations that need to be had sooner. And so my I am poem is, I am African by birth, American through naturalization. I am an immigrant forged from the hateful ideology of apartheid, tempered by the casual and relentless racism of the United States, joyfully and unapologetically indomitable. I am a torchbearer, a storyteller, a steward of knowledge. I am a woman, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a non-blood-related auntie. I am a Tar Heel, a New Yorker, an opera singer, a logophile, a philanthropist. I am loved, cherished, privileged, angry. I am. Danina, that's lovely. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and so you use that in RPA, like isn't your intro. That's how you, you lead off uh, when you're meeting somebody new in a meeting. It sort of depends. Like if we're talking CRM or NetSuite Financials or something mm-hmm. like that, I might save it for another time. Yeah. But my goal is eventually financial meetings, strategy meetings are all going to start with a better understanding of who's around the table. Yeah. I've used it now probably in three or four webinars and it's gotten such a great, like, I want to do that now. And I'm like, yeah, do it because yes, it's impressive that you went to this school and got an MBA and that you've been in the business for 20 some odd years. And it really is. And I'm, I'm, I'm not belittling that at all. But if we want to change how we operate in our organizations, how we operate in the globe, in society, it has to start with finding places of likeness and difference. Yeah. Well, there's some real vulnerability in that as well. And I really appreciate your modeling of that. Danina, you're so passionate about all this. And I love that. And I've always appreciated that in you. Can you give our listeners a little bit more on your background? I mean, you're 
poem in the abstract says so much, but maybe a little bit on how you got into KM and why this is such an area of passion for you and why it matters so much in the text of what you do at RPA. So I'm going to go big. Side note, do you watch South Park and the underpants gnomes? You know, I reference the underpants gnomes at work probably more than is appropriate. Absolutely. (laughs) It's such a great analogy for... Phase two, man. Phase Phase two. two. Yeah. Uh, You're going to have to explain this to our listeners. We're either losing people or really getting people's attention right now. So uh, underpants gnomes, go. Long story short, there's a kid whose underpants are being stolen by underpants gnomes, and the boys follow them into the gnomes' underground lair. And they're like, what are you doing with the underpants? And so they're like, well, we're stealing underpants for business. And so there's this pile of underpants, and the the little gnome puts his hands up, and there's a placard above it that says phase one. So he's like, phase one, steal underpants. And then he says phase two, which again has a placard, nothing. Phase three profit. So it's like we have this thing and it's going to make us profit. It's just the in-between stuff that we haven't figured out yet. And this is unfortunately way too familiar to a lot of people that have tried to do KM, right? So we're going to do KM and then there's a big blank part in the middle and then things are good or the organization's changed. So therein lies the context of how I tend to use this particular analogy. That empty, quiet middle tends to be pretty problematic. It is. And so recognition of where you are on the underpants scale is a huge Oh, there's a scale now, Danita. I I just made it up. I just made it up. I'm really good at phase one and phase three. And I think a lot of people tend to gravitate to one or the other. So I can be in the weeds on something and I can be on the large visionary scale of something. But getting those things to fruition is where like I love partnering with people who can recognize the vision, but then can also be like, um, that's going to cost this amount of money. And this is how much money we actually have. So fix it, visionary. So the reason I'm so passionate about KM and racial equity, because like I said, I think they are the same thing, mm-hmm. is that imagine if everybody in the world, see, I told you I was going to go big, had the right information at the right time in the right format to further their goals and the goals of their communities and their organizations. What would that look like? We would be in an entirely different state of being. I have the privilege to sit and think about what would it look like for us to have a pathways created between technology process and people, knowing full well that there are millions of people that don't have access even to the technology much less the process, right? So that's why I care so much because I think KM, which is everything, as we've discussed, can really change the world. If there's a soundbite, that's a pretty decent one, Danita. How'd you get into this? I mean, how did you discover that KM is the means to that wonderful end? I started off in program. So I was working on anything from climate change mitigation to homelessness prevention. And I was heading towards criminal justice reform as sort of my deep T. And then RPA recognized we have so much stuff that is so important and we don't know what to do with it and how to get it out. So I went online with my boss at the time and we found the Knowledge Management Institute. And I went and I took a five-day course, became you know a certified knowledge manager. And I remember coming out of that class going, huh, I might have a career. And as I mentioned, I'm an opera singer and the opera world has really suffered under the recession, just all sorts of things. And the pandemic has hit really hard in the arts. 
when I first started in the conservatory, we had this ear training class and we had to be placed in or placed out. We were in this room being tested and the professor was up on the piano and he was playing intervals on the piano, playing scales. And we had to recognize this. And I'm like, what in the world? I don't know what's happening. And I found out like for the pianists, this was something that they had done their entire lives. But this was the first time for some of them that it had a name put to it. KM is like that for me. I've done this sort of connecting, figuring out how this really weird thing about sense-making fits in with how we build a financial system. So when I hit KM, I was like, oh, I am the pianist in this case. I have a name for the thing that I've been doing most of my life. I love that. And, you know, to me, it's, first of all, I think really representative of your role at RPA that you have in a way kind of defined it, you've created it, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, you've said there is a gap here, there's an issue, there's a need, and you've carved that out. And so in order to do that, you needed an understanding set of colleagues who were Mm -hmm. willing to listen and understand the value of this. How did you, and forgive the word, how did you sell your role at RPA? How did you basically (laughs) say, my title should be manager of knowledge management? I am that person that is like all KM all the time. People will say something, I'm like, Gartner Hype Cycle, or hey, AAR, or hey, knowledge retention, whatever it is. And I get a lot of eye rolls. But there's this thing called the perceived weirdness index that is like, if you're too weird, you get not listened to. And if you're too much assimilated, you don't get listened to. But if you're just weird enough to kindle somebody's brain, then you have more of a chance of getting that attention. I have to say, there are so many people at RPA who are just really amazing at what they do and how they do it and have found a place for my weirdness. I almost feel like just weird enough is something I need to put on a t-shirt. So there have been people that have recognized, you know, weirdness is one word for it, uniqueness, the fact that you're willing to be outside of the box to use one of these very kind of standard work terms. But there had to be a pitch there. There had to be a point at which you were saying, KM can do this for the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was definitely a here's how it could affect your bottom line. Mm -hmm. There it is. So Um, tell us more on that. I use your statistics all the time about what 15 to 35% of people's time is spent looking for stuff, often stuff that they have filed away themselves. So numbers are fun, but then you have to figure out like the nice numbers because 15 to 35%, yeah, it sounds huge. But when you say 17 hours of people's time every week, that can really go nails up. it, doesn't it? it? People are like, I'm doing something with some other KM folks. And one of them is at the Ford Foundation. And they got rid of 7,000 cubic square feet of paper because of knowledge management, right? And it was something like 34,000 pounds of paper. Yeah. But in the getting rid of that, there was a sorting process, there was a examining process, and they were able to digitize some stuff that had been buried for decades that was mind-blowing. So there's the process part. The technology that's emerging in KM is fantastic, but I will say we need to have more people of color in this entire process because 
some of the technology is being coded by white guys and their biases and prejudices are being coded into the technology. And so it is another way sometimes that people who are already marginalized get marginalized further. So recruit all of your marginalized community friends into KM because they will find a place for themselves in it. Can you say more about the biases being coded into technology? This is an interesting topic. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours, but this seems like an important topic. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about your perspective on that. Yeah. One of my knowledge management ICMS persons wrote an article about this one search engine that was supposed to be used for identifying potential candidates for employment. Upon digging deeper, they found out that people who had expressed white supremacist norms and likes were being put into the same bucket as people who had Black Lives Matter in their profiles somewhere. And so both groups were being thrown out. And then there's the other one where Microsoft released a bot that was supposed to be like fun and chummy and on Twitter. And within 24 hours, 24 hours, that bot had become a racist butthead. I, I, I read of this. Yeah. So this is, I was taking it as in code, as in the literal code of the technology. You're talking about effectively the AI, the logic yeah. is, that's getting built in, potentially yeah. has biases or is receiving biases through the machine learning component. Yeah. There's it's not the these, code, it's the logic. Thank you. Thank no, you. Yeah. No, no, I, I needed to understand that. But the point is a really, really good one. It's a scary topic. And it's something that I think when we start talking about how KM becomes AI, how KM can effectively fuel knowledge, artificial intelligence within organizations, there's a cautionary tale here. If you're not architecting your KM systems and designs in a way that considers all of your users and all of their viewpoints, then you run the risk of reinforcing biases that might exist within the organization. A really, really important topic. And I think something that you can also look at as a real positive. There's an opportunity to break some of those biases. If we redesign our systems in ways that truly think about all of our users and all of their vocabulary and all the way that they want to find and use and harness knowledge and information, there is a beautiful transformation that organizations can go through as part of a KM transformation, right? Yeah. And so you see, look at that. Equity, KM, it's the same thing. Yeah. It is the same thing. So yeah, absolutely. I think you could take this in five different directions, but talk to me, Danita, a little bit about what are you most excited about in the field right now? You've mentioned some technology. You've mentioned, obviously, some kind of social elements of KM. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What are you most excited about that you see coming? Networks of KM folk, people who bring issues or problems or ideas to their KM nerd buddies and are like thoughts, comments, concerns. We have this one group, some big foundations, I don't think I can name names, but they are now in their KM, in their search engines, are now building equity into it, building a place for that into it. And it's because of the conversations that the KM folk have had amongst ourselves, right? The other thing is the empowerment of people, because I love technology. I really do. I know enough about it to be a danger to myself and others, but there are things out there that can cut people's grunt work, can cut it down by like hours, days. 
And if you've got the people who understand the needs of the organization and not just like, hey, here's this big shiny thing, let's get it without understanding why you're getting it. But if you've got those people into this mindset of knowledge manager, knowledge worker, knowledge holder, then the technology becomes something beautiful. And I love, love, love making things easier for my colleagues. Danita, I'm picking up on a theme with a lot of what you have said thus far. You know, the phrase that I use is KM can be a self-feeding beast, that the more good KM activity that happens in the organization, the more people understand KM and therefore want to support it, exhibit good KM behaviors as a result, are more willing to share their knowledge and offer their time and publish stuff in the way that you've asked them to. You've taken a really interesting view of this to the fact that that's not just within an organization, but it's also in a way, global in nature, that by exposing more information, we're arming more people with the knowledge they need to be in an equitable position and therefore succeed and therefore share their knowledge themselves. Any response to that? Yes. So one of my major KM tenets to which I adhere is knowledge shared is power multiplied, because I do think that there are people in organizations who tend to hoard knowledge because they're afraid if I share what I know, then somebody else is going to be able to do my job or I will lose that little bit of power that I have. But with KM, I drive people crazy because I personally think that KM is the entire organization. For other organizations, KM is going to sit with IT or with HR or with program or somewhere else in the organization in which it's just as siloed as all of the other departments in an organization. That's fine. The thing about KM, how to get started with KM is just start and see where it leads you, right? But also be aware of the lessons learned opportunity, because I think a lot of folks try something and it quote unquote fails. (laughs) And then they're like, well, that was a big old failure. I'm done with that. Right. But the beauty of KM is adding those two little questions of what did we learn and how can this apply to the same thing or Mm -hmm. apply into a different endeavor? And when you start asking those two questions, you realize an opportunity begets an opportunity. And this comes from Andrea Donahue at the Ford Foundation, who said those words. Because if you start delving into how can we make our organizational knowledge flow better, which is one of the ways in which knowledge management can be defined. For example, we did a knowledge retention process with one of our retiring colleagues. And that process led to recordings and like mm. a 32-page report that touched on every single part of the organization. So from that one opportunity of knowledge transfer, we get 15 other opportunities to improve yeah. our organizational knowledge. That's that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really strikes me about this too is, you know, I, I use the phrase of self-feeding beast, but you've actually taken it a step further. What you're actually identifying Mm -hmm. is by capturing one piece of knowledge, you're not just encouraging other people to do good KM, you're actually encouraging organizational change. This is really about transformation. If we can be effective in KM, we're not just getting people to do good KM, we're helping people to do their jobs better, we're helping the organization to perform better, and we're identifying really new ways for the organization to deliver on its mission. 
can you tell everybody how you got started in the field and the really more specifically the recommendations you would have for how others could do it? I know that you said that you know, you created your role, you kind of pitched it, you explained to your bosses, your colleagues, why KM should exist as a position within RPA. But what would you recommend to others? Like, is it research? Is it reading? Is it going to school? Is it doing what you did and just, you know, basically finding a need? Okay, so I wanted to add some context to one of the things that you said, which is that it was actually mm. RPA who recognized first That's even better. the need for knowledge management. We realized how much information we have in the organization. And initially, it was meant to be like how to influence the sector. And eventually, we realized that we had to split into knowledge mm -hmm. management and knowledge development. So knowledge management is more internal facing. Knowledge development is more external facing. But we use basically the same information. It's just where it goes. Well, the lucky thing is that there now exists a treasure trove of books and articles and things like that. There's one that's called The Power of KM, and it's got this weird little diamond on the cover. But I always, like, I put a little post-it note under the title, The Power of KM. My post-it <laughs> note reads, compels you, because it felt like one of those things, like, this do, is now do you your do that? Do you carry you the book around and it. wave it in front of but, people that aren't tagging their content properly? <laughs> no, for reals. I had it at my desk and <laughs> I would pull it out and show people and like leaf through it. But now, of course, it's in my office and I've been working in my home since then. So I, I feel bereft. If you just do some a little bit of homework and find knowledge management, the leaders in the field are David Gertine and Stan Garfield. And then, I mean, look at the stuff that you guys are producing, KMI, and there's just so much information. The last question I wanted to get to is really around your own critical recommendations, those things that based on, on your successful career and what you've learned, what does an organization absolutely need to do? What should an organization really watch out for or be careful that they don't do or that they step into? I think one of the biggest traps for knowledge management is mm. thinking that it can be only one thing. I've worked with organizations that have, you know, three people. They can use knowledge management. I've never worked with an organization that has like 10,000 people. But, you know, I've worked in organizations that have like hundreds of people. There are different needs for KM depending on the size of your organization, depending on what the mission of your organization is, depending on how you started off. For like startups, they're already in the systems, right? So they can figure out how the systems are. If you're coming from a more traditional, especially in the philanthropy world, from a foundation point of view, these organizations yeah. have existed for decades, right? And so moving that idea of knowledge lives in one person or in a file cabinet to knowledge lives in all of us, in all of the systems, in all of the processes is more of a tricky wicket. A sticky wicket is what, what the thing is. The tenets that I would do is if you're an organization that can't afford knowledge management, like a dedicated knowledge management person, find somebody who's in knowledge management, have a conversation with them, set up like a regular meeting or two every two months or something, mm -hmm. just to talk over some ideas of KM. What I love about KM is that 90% of the time we're using information that exists yes. in the organization. So if you're a smaller organization, it doesn't mean that you can't do KM. 
Danita Volkvane, thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you for adding your own experience and insights to this. I thought it was a really wonderful and rich conversation. For those of you out there, thanks for listening to this episode of KnowledgeCast. To check out more information on knowledge management, visit our website at enterprise-knowledge.com. Have a great day, everybody.